Our passage for this morning's sermon is found in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, and we'll be looking at verse 14. The word that came to Jeremiah says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people has spoken? Saying, The two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Thus, they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Let's pray. Our Father, As we look at this passage that promises the restoration of David and the Davidic kingdom, we pray that, Lord, you would magnify yourself in our eyes, that you would help us see how faithful, how unbreakable your promises are. When you make promises to us, you will not forget them. You will not fail to keep them. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to Remember this, to be encouraged by this, and to be emboldened to live a life of thankfulness and of passion for Christ as a result. I pray, Lord, that you would magnify yourself in the preaching of your word. May you receive the glory and you alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. From childhood, we've all been taught in one form or another that there is an incredible power in a promise. When someone tells us something, we want to know that we can trust them. We want to know that we can take them at their word because we want assurances that what was promised to us will take place. How do we go about receiving those assurances? Well, as children, many of us have been taught the promise of the pinky promise or pinky swear. As we get older, Pinky promises simply will not do because there's always that one kid. Right? There's always that one kid who'll say, pinky swear, and then he crosses his fingers and puts them behind his back. Like, oh, pinky swear, right? You just can't trust that guy. Some popular television shows have had characters who tell others to trust them. And they say, I give you my word. Trust me. 
And you're thinking to yourself, why would I do that? I don't know who you are. Right? And it's, amazingly, it works. I give you my word. Okay, sure. Right? It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And perhaps it works because, well, of course, screenwriting. But perhaps it also works because the person's reputation is of being trustworthy. But we know from those days when we were betrayed by those other children who crossed their fingers behind their backs and break their promises to us, that we need more than just someone's word to trust them. And so when we get older, those of us who are wiser, we seek other ways to get assurances of what was promised. We ask for, but often ignore, especially when it comes to software, terms and conditions. We sign contracts that state our intent. We make audio recordings so that the context of the entire conversation can be taken into account as we attempt to hold the other party responsible for what they promised. We have to go through all of those measures because the people who make us promises, no matter how trustworthy they are and how trustworthy they may seem, are capable of breaking those promises to us. However, there is still one person whom we can trust. When he gives us his word, and that person is God. Granted, God does give us his word in writing. That's what we have in our Bibles. But when God makes promises to his people, the assurance that he will follow through on his promises ultimately hinge on God and his character. Because God himself is the one who who makes the promises and alone has the power to bring those promises to fruition, God's people can trust that promises God makes to them will certainly be fulfilled. In this morning's passage, we find ourselves in the middle of a prophecy that God gives Jeremiah while Jeremiah is in prison. King Zedekiah of Judah did not like Jeremiah's prophecies of exile and defeat at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who had besieged the city. And so he threw the prophet into prison. This prophecy that the Lord gives Jeremiah tells him, in the midst of the siege of the city, that he will heal them and restore them to their former glory after he disciplines them for their sin. And though the people feel as if his discipline is a final rejection of them, God has not rejected them and will make the land prosperous again. But not only will he make the land prosperous again, but God will also fulfill his former promises to David, the promise of an everlasting kingdom. And as we enter into December and are about to look into the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Pastor Henry's Luke series, I want us to take a step back. To help us understand the longing, the anticipation of the birth of Messiah. To help us worship our Lord more in thanks as we see the sureness of our God's promises. And we'll do that this morning by observing three ways God comforts his people with reminders of his faithfulness. Three ways that God comforts his people with reminders of his faithfulness. The first way that God comforts his people is God reiterates his promises. God reiterates his promises. Verse 14 says this, Behold, days are coming. As God makes his promise to make the land which was made desolate full again, he actually takes the focus off the land and off the restoration of the people to the land and places the focus on one of his most important promises. In those days, days that will be in the distant future, since even the exile and desolation of the land have not yet occurred, God declares 
that he will fulfill the good word which he had spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Naturally, we should be wondering, what is this good word which God has promised the house or houses of Israel and Judah? When was this promise made? Well, according to the words given to Jeremiah, the good word given for those uh, th- those coming days can be traced back to Jeremiah 29.10. Jeremiah 29.10. In Jeremiah 29.10, we see that after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, God will fulfill his good word to the people to bring them back to the land. They'll be exiled for a short time, but they will come back in 70 years. <clears throat> The good word God has spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah is their restoration to land after exile. The nation of Israel, which had broken, which had broken away from the kingdom of Judah, had already been in exile for close to 200 years. The nation of Judah, they have Babylon at their doorstep. And if Jeremiah's words are to be believed, they will be cast into exile soon. And there is despair and hopelessness in the hearts of the people as exile. The same fate that Israel faced is imminent. Yet God reminds Israel and Judah, you will come home to live in the land. Why will they come home? They'll come home because God himself, who told them they would go home, would be the one to bring them home. He promised it and he will do it. But restoration to the land is not all that God will do in those days. Verse 15. In those days and at that time, God will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Why is this branch imagery being used? Well, for starters, the nation of Israel has been compared to a green olive tree. It's been symbolized by olive tree for a long time. And the people of God are a part of that tree. From among the branches of the tree, there is one branch, one family that will produce the king. And when talking about the future Davidic king who will reign with the spirit of God resting on him in Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah describes the coming king as a shoot which springs forth from the stem or root of Jesse, who is David's father. The imagery of a branch is consistent with how God has identified his chosen nation and the families within it. We see that later in Romans 11, the olive the olive tree imagery returns as Paul says that we as Gentiles are grafted onto the natural branches of the root, which had branches which had been broken off so that we could be grafted in. Where did Paul get that imagery from? It's not like Paul was just wandering through an olive grove one day and said, hey, that's a good sermon illustration. I'll put that in my letter to the Romans. No, Paul understood How God has used the olive tree to symbolize his chosen nation. And he uses that symbolism to illustrate how it is possible for Gentiles like you and me to be a part of God's family. Now, returning to the usage of the branch imagery in Jeremiah. God identifies the coming of the righteous branch of David to the people to emphasize that it is not over yet. It's not over yet for you, even though your sister nation has been taken into exile. They were taken away by the Assyrians. And you, yes, are about to be taken away by the Babylonians, but the nation will survive. Think about that. Your enemy is at the door. They're about to take you away. You have no assurances that you will survive the 70 years. And yet, God says, you will survive. You will come back. 
Right? And this branch imagery, it provides hope, not only because it guarantees that the nation will, be, will survive and will be replanted after being uprooted, but also because the one who will be coming to reign will be a righteous branch of David. Unlike all, all the all-too-human failures from David's line who served as king in, in, uh, in Judah, this branch is different because he is righteous. Yes, Judah had good kings, right? Whenever we talk about kings, we, we look at Israel and we said, Israel, all bad kings, right? Judah, mostly good kings. But this king is different because he alone is righteous. He alone is righteous. And his righteousness is demonstrated in the fact that he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Something that would be impossible if the branch was weak. This branch, he is righteous, he has power, and he has authority. And as a result, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety because of the ability of the king to reign in justice and righteousness. Now you'll notice that the city of Jerusalem will be identified as the Lord is our righteousness. The capital city will take on the same characteristics as the Lord who will dwell within her, causing her to be known by his name. And that's a huge contrast from the more recent wickedness that plagued the house of Judah, stemming all the way back to David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And despite those sins that David committed, despite the sins that his descendants committed after him, God does not and will not forget the promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, when he said that he will establish David's house and kingdom forever. The promise that God made to David when he established his covenant with David was not one that could be revoked if David or David's descendants failed to keep their end of the bargain. When you read the Old Testament, you will see that David and his descendants continually failed to keep the law. They all sinned terribly. If it were up to them, the promise would have been broken a long time ago. But the promise did not depend on them and their obedience but it depended on the faithfulness of God and God alone. It hinged on God's ability to keep his word. And what we see here is that God does not fail to keep his promises, even when we fail to do our part. Interestingly, verse 18, it builds off of verse 17. And it says that just as David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, so the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before him to offer up sacrifices and offerings. Why? In part, is because God made a similar but less known promise to assure that there would always be Levites to stand before God to a priest named Phineas in Numbers 25 due to Phineas' faithfulness and zeal for the Lord. However, it also has to do with the role of the Levitical priest in the worship life of the pe- people of Israel. If the people will be restored to the land, restored as a nation, and receive the righteous king, but they do not have the worship of God who loved them and delivered them, they will not have everything. It won't be enough if they don't get to worship God. And this is a bit of a side note. But the type of offerings here listed confirm the role of the ongoing line of the Levitical priests in the future. It reminds us that we cannot just look into the future and assume that because Jesus died on the cross that the Levites are now defunct, that they don't matter anymore. Because Jesus takes over as, in his role as prophet, priest, and king. Yes, 
He is a priest, right? We know that from Hebrews. He is described as a priest, but he is not a Levitical priest. He is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek. He's a king priest. It's a different type of priest. He is a worship leader in that sense, but he does not authorize to function as a Levitical priest because he is from the tribe of Judah, right? Numbers 3.10 prohibits anyone, even Jesus, anyone from taking the role of a, Levit- of a Levitical priest if they're not Levites. Right? So his priesthood is different. He's a Melchizedekian king, priest. So his priesthood is different. But what we see here is that the Levitical priests, they will have a role. When you look in Revelation and you see that sacrifices are being offered to God, they're not sin sacrifices. Those are worship sacrifices. And who offers them up? The Levites. Due to our lack of careful study, whenever we see the languages of offering and sacrifices, most of us, we just glaze over the role of specific offerings and sacrifices. Because we usually think sacrifices, oh, sin sacrifices, right? Don't you remember that? You, you start your Bible reading plan, you read through Genesis, it's bearable, Exodus is okay. And then when you get to Numbers, it's like, all right, you know, it's still not too bad. Once you get to Leviticus, you're just like, oh my goodness, what are all these laws and sacrifices? I don't care. But there is a significance to it. Okay? So there's a reason why these specific offerings are given. The burnt offering, the first offering listed, it symbolized total dedication to God. Just as you would burn up the entire animal to the fire, so are you to be fully and totally dedicated to God. That's what it symbolized. The grain offering, it communicated thanksgiving to God. As you took your harvest, you took a portion of those crops, of that first crop. Right? That's an important crop because you don't know whether the crops will continue to come. But you take a portion of that first crop and you give it up to the Lord in thanksgiving, trusting that he will bring the rest. And you give it in thanks, knowing that he will give the rest. While it's not clear which offerings or sacrifices are being referred to by that phrase to prepare sacrifices continually, it does not seem like sin or guilt offerings are in view because God would have mentioned that as a part of their religious life. Right, so what we see here is this total dedication and thankfulness to God. These are the sacrifices that the Levites will give. And so their continued presence in the future, when the righteous branch will reign, is to facilitate the worship of God. And that provides hope to God's people. That they will not receive all the gifts of God, but not have God himself with them in the restoration. Worship will continue, and the relationship they once had with God before their sin will be restored. So how can we, as the church, respond to God's promises? How do these promises about national restoration, the coming of the king, and the continued worship of God affect our lives? Well, first of all, it's a great comfort to us because God does not forget his promises at all. There are three promises that God made in the past to his people that are covered here in this this, uh, section of scripture. And these promises, they actually build off of other promises as well. And even though there may be a delay in the realization of God's promises, we know that he will be faithful to fulfill them because even though he gave these promises hundreds, if not thousands of years before he gave it to the people who were under siege, he did not forget the promises that he made. You and I could forget the promises that we make to one another probably within a few hours. 
But he will not. He will not forget the promises that he made. And that reminds us, secondly, that we are to be patient as we wait for God to fulfill his promises. It may be tempting, especially when we are hurting or when a loved one's hurting, to think that due to the seeming slowness of God's response, that he has forgotten about us and his promises to us. But as we can see, he does not forget. Because of his character and his power, God will surely keep his promises. When he gives his word, he will follow through. But what if, what if we're still doubting? What if we're unsure if we can trust God to keep his promises because it still seems like God has been silent? Well, that leads us to the second way that God comforts his people, which is God assures of his faithfulness. God assures of his faithfulness. In another part of the vision that Jeremiah received, the word of the Lord came to him and provides him with extraordinary, with an extraordinary assurance. He says, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priest, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levitical ministers who minister to me. God, he points to the daytime and the nighttime. He calls the order which he set them a covenant. And that's curious language. Why would God call the order of when day and night come in the 24-hour cycle a covenant? Well, remember who he's talking to and what he had just reiterated. He's recalling his faithfulness to the Davidic covenant, which is back in 2 Samuel 7. And then he also recalled the covenant that he made with Phineas in Numbers 25. Covenants are already on the minds of the people. And so, because those covenants drive how God acts, he calls the way that creation uh, responds to how God acts a covenant. And he draws on those previous thoughts, those previous covenants, and he wants them to see and affirm that he has a good track record with covenants. He makes them and he keeps them. It's a good thing. So God is the one who created day and night. He set their times. He continues to uphold them so that they occur when they're supposed to occur. And because he assures the day and the night of what he will do for them and continues to be faithful to fulfill what he has ordained for their function, this is, in a sense, a covenant. And in a similar way, God creates us. He's created an environment around us. And he's continually sustaining us so that every single breath that we draw is in thanks to God for what he has done. He covenanted with David and with the Levites to do more than what he had already done for them. And so, when he promises that he will bring the people back to the land, they know that God can be trusted. He has a track record of undeniable faithfulness in the covenants that he has made with creation and with his people. And that track record of undeniable faithfulness is what he points the people to, to provide them the assurance that he doesn't just remember what he says in the past. He also actively works to fulfill what he has promised in the past. In other words, God is not like those people who give you their word and then promptly forget or fail you. He gives you his word, and he always follows through. But what God says here is that if 
this set time, if this promised time for day and night to occur can be broken so that the day does not happen when it's supposed to and the night doesn't happen when it's supposed to, then, and only then, can his covenant with David be broken. What would that look like? Well, you would know for sure that the covenant with David would be broken if David does not have a son to reign on his throne, the rightful throne of God's chosen nation of Israel. Some may argue, as some do still, that this is what happened because of the harsh realities of exile, right? That God did abandon, <clears throat> did abandon the Davidic kings and that led to despair and fears of abandonment. But when you look at God's promise to David of always having a king on the throne, God actually didn't promise an unbroken chain of kings who will always perpetually sit on the throne. God promised that David would not lack a man to sit on the throne, which means that even if David's family gets kicked off the throne, they're temporarily displaced, that David's family will never be wiped out. There might be an interruption of the line, but David's family will never be wiped out so that there will no longer be a king capable of taking the throne. There will be survivors, and from those survivors, the righteous branch of David will sprout and will take his place on the throne. I mean, if you've ever thought about it, why is it that two descendants of David, Mary and Joseph, live in the slums of Israel? Why is that? Because they were displaced. They were displaced, but yet they were still alive. And from Mary, the righteous branch sprouts. Right? There was always a man. God was always faithful. He kept the family of David alive. That was his promise. God uses this impossible hypothetical situation to prove just how committed he is to keeping his promises. Can you, can anyone, can anything break my covenant with a day and night so that they won't ever occur again? And the answer, of course, is No. And God's point here is that if he is faithful in sustaining day and night, making sure that they will always occur at their appointed times, then we can certainly trust in his promises to us. It's a comparison of the greater to the lesser. If God will not break his promises for the day and night, then he will certainly not break his promises to David and the Levites, and he will certainly not break his promises to us. And therefore, though the situation looks grim, Though it appears that the people of Israel will be scattered forever and that their people will come to an end, God's people should not fear. They rightly deserve discipline for their rebellion and lack of worship of him. And so they are reaping the consequences of their actions. Just like children who don't listen to mommy and daddy, they reap the consequences of their actions. Right? They might say, sorry, 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 I won't do it again. Right? But you have to show them the consequences of their actions. Otherwise, they'll just do it again. How do you know? Because that's how we all are, right? I mean, you think about it this way too. Just like murderers. You can have someone who murders another. They can cry and repent and tell, them that, tell, tell you that they're remorseful. But do we say, oh, oh, you, you're sorry that you killed someone? Okay, sure, you don't have to go to jail. No, right? that's miscarriage of justice. They still have to bear the consequences of their sin. So the people of Israel... Though they may have cried out and said, sorry, God, we won't do it again. He said, well, you still have to bear the consequences of your actions. 
which is why exile happens. And despite the fact that consequences must come, God's people cannot lose hope because he will not abandon them, even though he does have to discipline them. And to back up this assurance, God says that as the stars are in the heaven, as they cannot be counted, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so will God multiply the descendants of David and the Levites. He says, I will keep my promises to them. They won't just survive, they'll thrive. That language should catch your attention because you've heard it before in Genesis 15 when God assures Abraham that he will fulfill the promise that he made to him to bring him descendants, land, and blessing. God promises that Abraham's descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. And God evokes that language and he brings to the people's memories what he had previously done for the father of their nation. He took Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees and he blessed him. And his family grew and grew and grew and grew until you got the nation of Israel. And he says, think about that. I promised Abraham that I will take his small family and make him a nation. And I did it. I will do the same thing for David and the Levites. You will have hope. You will survive. You will come back home to me. If God was faithful to keep those promises to Abraham, he can certainly be faithful to keep the promises to David and to the Levites. And if God will do all of that, even though he must discipline his children, they can have hope in what God has planned for them in the future. That even even if they must for a little while endure pain, full restoration and blessing will come in those future days. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you to consider God's covenant with the day and the night. Consider the sureness of his promises to his people. As those who have been grafted into the people of God, we are allowed to share in some of the blessings that God has given his people. And one of those blessings is very clear to us as we are fast approaching Christmas. It's December 1st, but in just a few weeks, you know we'll have Christmas. The birth of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And while there are still aspects of the Davidic covenant that are yet to be fulfilled, you, being born on this side of the cross, have seen firsthand how God has been faithful to cause the righteous branch of David to sprout, even though exile occurred. And therefore, we can trust that God will fulfill his promises because we have seen, if only in part, the coming of the king. And because of that, we praise God. We rejoice in his faithfulness and we give thanks to God for Christ because we see, looking back, that God does not make promises he cannot keep. He kept the promises that he, need, that he made to bring about the salvation of all who will believe and repent of their sins. Will he not be faithful to, to fulfill the rest of the promises so that we will one day be like our Savior and be in heaven to dwell with him forever? Yes, he will. But God... He understands that there are times when we may still be tempted to doubt. Though God has proved his faithfulness time and again, we as finite human beings will always be tempted to doubt his goodness when we experience suffering or when we must continue to wait. And so God, he provides his people a third way that he comforts them, which is God guarantees his faithfulness. God guarantees his faithfulness. This next section of verses is very similar to the verses that we just explored, but there is a marked difference because God doubles down on the certainty of his faithfulness. You'll notice that it is similar. 
What he says is similar. But he moves from giving an assurance to giving a guarantee. You move from having something that is comforting, a statement that is meant to comfort, to a statement that is supposed to tell you this is absolutely going to happen. This is certainly going to happen. As God recalls the specific promises he wants his people to remember, as they are tempted to doubt as their city is under siege, he assures them of his ability to keep his promises and he provides them evidence that he will do it. And now he makes those assurances complete as he gives a guarantee, a certain outcome that he will bring about for them to experience. The word of the Lord comes again to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people has spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them? Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. The people of Judah, the very people who heard Jeremiah's prophecies, they're the ones who are doubting. They saw how their sister nation Israel was invaded and carried off into exile by the Assyrians. They're currently under siege by the Babylonians, and God had already revealed that they would be taken away. And so their discouragement was high, which is why they looked at the nation of Israel, the chosen Davidic line, and they said, God's promises, they're not real. He's rejected us. And this doubt that the people have regarding God's faithfulness to the entire nation of Israel, the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah together, and to the Davidic house, the only true family that has a right to the throne, caused the people to despise those who still hoped in God. They thought that their status as a nation was over. And that doubt is understandable because it appears through God's anger and judgment of his people that he's rejected them forever. But God has not done that. On the contrary, he has also promised their restoration to himself when they repent, when their allotted time for discipline is over. He has made promises to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has made promises of blessing. He has made promises to David. They are his people, and he is their God. And those promises cannot be disregarded by God, no matter how sinful and how rebellious they have been, because those promises were dependent upon God and his character, not on their ability to live perfectly before him. It hinged entirely on God. And therefore, God, he returns to that hypothetical situation with the day and the night, and he adds on to it to provide a guarantee of his faithfulness to his people. We've already seen, we've already established that God's covenant with the day and the night cannot be broken and should provide really all the assurance that his people need, that God will fulfill his promises and sustain and multiply the families of David and Levi so the kingdom will be restored and the worship of God will continue forever. That should have been enough. That should have been enough. But... And don't judge them for this. Their hearts still doubted. Their hearts still doubted. So God adds to this impossible to break covenant with the day and the night and says that the only way his faithfulness to his promises can be broken is if he had not established the fixed patterns of heaven and earth. What is God saying? He's saying, if I did not create the heavens and the earth and establish the natural laws that govern them, hold them in place, then, and only then, will I reject the nation of Israel and the Davidic house. Is this not the most rock-solid guarantee 
of the, of the fulfillment of his promises that God could give, God's not talking to atheists. He is not talking to pagans who have their own gods and understanding of how the world came to be. He is talking to his chosen people who already believed that he created everything and established everything through the word of his power. They were taught that from birth. That Yahweh, the maker of the heavens and earth and all the earth contains, set everything into their natural order. And he sustains every single one of them. That is the one who did it for them. He's created everything. He's established everything. They believe that. They know that. And it is he who is talking to them now. God's saying, you can't stop the day from coming. You can't stop the night from coming. They will always become, they will always come because that's how I created it and made it to be. And since I'm the one who put everything in its place and I made the rules, you can't doubt because I did those things. And if you can prove somehow, some way that I didn't do those things, then and only then will I break my promises to David, and to the Levites, and to the nation. Essentially, he's kind of saying, you believe in me, right? You believe in Yahweh, right? The God who created everything, the God who increased Abraham's family so it became a nation. I'm the God that you worship. If it can be proven that I've done none of those things, then sure, I'll break my covenant with you. Now, we today, we do have alternative explanations for how all of creation is put into place, but something that we cannot deny. Even if you... Even if you're agnostic, something that you cannot deny is that the universal laws that governs all of existence, that holds everything into place, that holds the molecules into place, everything that we see and understand and, and, and whatnot, they don't just appear. Okay? The universal laws, they don't just exist in and of themselves. Science is not a god unto itself. Science is not like God in the sense that it just always existed. It was put into place by someone, right? You can't have something out of nothing except for when God does it. Because otherwise, scientifically, if you go to the logical end, nothing always gives you what? Nothing. God put it into place. God put it into place. And because he put them there, because he put them there, his promises will stand forever. And therefore, he, God moves on from these impossible scenarios. And he reaffirms that he will restore the fortunes of the nation and the line of David. He will have mercy on them. And that is something that the people should never forget. As we reflect on God's guarantee of the fulfillment of his promises, we cannot help but find encouragement. God remembers his promises. That should comfort us. And that leads us to want to be patient. Even though we don't always want to be patient. Because we know that he will fulfill his promises. And additionally, those assurances of his promises ought to cause us to be thankful. Because we have solid proof that God does keep his promises. And now, with this rock-solid guarantee, we as believers, as we look forward to this Christmas season and the rest of our lives, we're reminded of the great power of God. We're reminded that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promises God made to his people in the past are held fast by his 
faithful love and his holy and righteous character. And though we are not the direct recipients of these promises, we share in them because God, who is loving and gracious, has allowed for blessing, blessing in the form of salvation, to come forth from the family of Abraham. He told Abraham in the Davidic covenant, it's through you, through your family, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's why you and I have salvation this day. Because God was faithful to accomplish that aspect of salvation. Though trials may come, though we may face disappointment in this life, though everything may not turn out as we expected or planned, we know for certain that we can trust our God and place our hope in him because we have seen, we have heard of God's faithfulness in causing the righteous branch of David to spring forth, even though he put his people in exile. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God has come. He reigns at the right hand of the Father. At the right time, a time that is coming soon, he will come back to establish his kingdom on the earth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. He will save his people, and he will dwell among us, and he will reign. Isaiah 9, 6-7 reminds us this. For a child will be born to us, A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You know this will happen because God's own passion will cause him to accomplish this. While the promises given to us by fellow human beings, whether they be believers or unbelievers, can fail us and disappoint us, we are reminded from the prophecies that God gave Jeremiah that God himself will never, ever, ever fail us. He does not cross his fingers behind his back. He does not forget. He does not lack in diligence. God comforted his people who were about to enter exile through three reminders of his faithfulness. He reiterated his promises to them. He assured them of his faithfulness. And he guaranteed his faithfulness to them. Following those 70 years of exile, the people eventually saw that God was faithful to bring them home to the land. And what they waited for next was the right king the righteous branch of David, to come and execute righteousness and justice in the land. And to this day, those Jews who have not believed in Christ and repented of their sins are waiting for that king to come. But, brothers and sisters, we know that the righteous branch of David has already come. That he came to this earth. He was born as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose again. And so we, too, wait for him, but it's different because we wait for him to come again to bring us home and to establish his kingdom. And as we look forward to being reminded of the circumstances surrounding his birth this month, may our worship be propelled forward because we remember that his birth 
was just the beginning of the end as God puts into motion the rise of the righteous branch of David. Our king has come. He is coming again because God himself promised it. He will reign. Let's pray. Father, due to our inability at times to see the big picture, we are often tempted to doubt that you will be faithful to your promises. But what we have seen this morning is a reminder of the fact that within your very scriptures, we have evidence of the fact that you do keep your promises, that you do not forget. And you will accomplish in your time the fulfillment of your promises. And so we pray that, Lord, you would strengthen and encourage our doubting hearts, that you would cause for us to be reminded of the certainty of your faithfulness. And as a result, when we think about Christ, we look at the full picture, not just the fact that he comes and he accomplishes our salvation, but we look at the full picture that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that he will come again, that he will reign. And though we may be distracted in our lives, though we may lose sight and lose hope of the hope that is set before us, May we be reminded of the fact that our king presently reigns and he is coming back and he will bring us home. And as we study more about him, as we're reminded of him this Christmas season, may our joy increase evermore as we consider the fact that he is the fulfillment of your promises and that he does reign. We're grateful to you, Lord, for your unbreakable promise. It's your sons, and we pray. Amen.